Well, Exodus chapter 34, today we are concluding our series called The Character of God. And if you notice, we have spent four weeks on one verse. Did you notice that? For four weeks, we really have been in one verse that we've been picking apart the different parts of God's character. And like I said at the beginning, the reason I did this series, or I'm doing it and finishing it up today, is because so many people... Uh, think they know what God's like because of what they've created in their own mind. Someone has told them in error, maybe by their experiences. You know, again, God, people, people, um, uh, think about God and maybe create God to, to be who they want him to be. They fit their lifestyle. Are y'all tracking with me? There's a lot of people that say, Oh, God loves me just as I am, or God's okay with me doing this, but that's not what the Bible says, right? You're tracking with me? And so we go into the Word of God to see who he is. And, and what's amazing is, is that all these attributes that he gives to Moses has to do with how he deals with people. He could have said, I am Yahweh, the God of majesty and, and glory and honor and all of these, and could have talked about his attributes and his power, but he talked about his attributes and how he deals with people. And so that shows, I'm hoping that through this series, you've maybe learned a few Hebrew words, but that this is going to help you in how you interact with the Lord. In your relationship with him, hopefully you get to know him more, as I always pray, that you would know him more and love him better in a relationship, in an intimate relationship with you, uh, with you and him. Amen. So let's read the verse we've been at for last four weeks, Exodus 34, 6, and we'll recap. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, Yahweh. Remember, when you see Lord in all caps, it's actually uh, translated Yahweh, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and fill with unfailing love and faithfulness. So week one, we saw that his character was clear from his name, Yahweh. And his name means I will always be what I've always been. It's really not that simple. It's very complex. But his name does come from the root Hebrew word Yahweh that's based upon a verb that he's always moving. He's always he's always interacting. We see the cloud by day and fire by night was always moving, right? And that he always existed outside of time and space. He created these things and he always will be for all of eternity and through this we know that he's consistent he's connected he's a covenant God and he's a commissioning God week two we saw that he's compassionate and gracious these two words compassion and gracious in Hebrew is Rahum Hanum and he wrote this poetically so the people of Israel and us would know it and then so we could re recite it and pray it and know that he is compassionate and gracious week three we saw then the verse six that in his unique character God is slow to anger let me give you a little quiz again Bible says God is slow to anger so does God get angry yes he does he does get angry. We looked at that, but he is slow to anger. That Hebrew uh, phrase, it comes from the Hebrew word arek, and it means long-suffering. Your translation may say that, that God is long-suffering. And it's interesting because you go into the New Testament, and what the Bible says, the fruits of the Spirit we produce, and long-suffering is one of them. Being patient, right? Because he is, right? We see clearly that he does get angry, but there's a sequence to God's anger, and it's wanting, warning, watching, and wrath. God is wanting everyone to be saved, right? We see that clearly. Then he warns people. You know, I'm reading through the prophets again right now. Just finished Isaiah. I'm reading Jeremiah. And just this morning in my daily reading, the subtitle for one of the chapters in Jeremiah was the Lord's warning to Israel. Many of the Old Testament prophets were warning Israel, what would happen if they, if they continued to serve idols or turned away from the Lord? Then he's watching. He's watching for fruits of repentance to see if people are going to repent. And if people don't repent, wrath is coming. 
God poured out his wrath on the earth. We see it uh, through the flood, uh, and we see that wrath is coming again from Romans and Revelations. That wrath will be poured out on the whole earth once again. And what's known as the tribulation, the good news is that, again, God is wanting and has given everyone a chance to be, repent and to trust in Jesus. Because when Jesus died on the cross, God poured out all of his wrath for sin upon him. He took our sin and our punishment, our pain and our penalty. And the full wrath of God was poured out on him. That's why God had to turn his face away. That if we would repent and trust and believe in Jesus, we can be spared from the wrath to come. Amen? That's the good news. Like they say, you can't have good news unless there's bad news. Bad news is wrath is coming. Good news is we'll be spared of it if we accept the free gift of salvation that Jesus paid for. And then last week, we saw in verse 6, we studied his unfailing love and faithfulness. Unfailing love in the Hebrew is hesed and faithfulness is emet. The two words are always used as a pair. Hesed is translated loyal love, steadfast love, or loving kindness. You might Maybe what your translation says, like that God is God of loving kindness. And he met is translated faithful, truth, honesty, and secure. So today we're going to conclude by seeing that Yahweh is a generational God. He is the God of generations. Let's read verses 7 and 8 now in, in Exodus 34, 7 and 8. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. This is the Lord speaking. And really, literally, actually, it means to thousands of generations, not just a thousand. In the Hebrew, it means to thousands of generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshipped. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the everlasting God. You are Yahweh, the great I am. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself not only to Moses, but to all of us through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you continue to give us greater revelation of who you are, Heavenly Father, that we may know you more, love you better, and do what you've created and called us to do. Help me, Holy Spirit, as I preach today. Lord, I need your anointing, your, your, your grace uh, to rightly divide the word of truth and give us all the grace to apply this to our lives and our relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Really in verse 7, we're going to finish this series today by looking at there's four promises in verse 7. We spent four weeks in verse 6. Today I'm going to show you in verse 7 there's four promises from this passage. Number one, that God lavished, his lavish love lasts for generations. His lavish love lasts for generations. Verse 7, I lavish unfailing love, that's hesed. I lavish hesed to a thousand generations. The word lavish here means he protects he guards and he ensures Hesed love for a thousand or thousands of generations. So in our day and age, a generation, they say, is at, at, on average is 25 years. So if he lavishes unfailing love on a thousand generations, you mathematicians, how many generations is that? Pretty simple. How much? 25,000. That's right. Come on. Say it bold, Miss Clovia. That's right. 25,000. Descendants. I'm sorry, Miss Clovia. I keep coming to you. Miss Clovia came to help us the other day, and she's like, you called me out the other day, brother. I'm like, I'm sorry, Miss Clovia. But it's okay. So right answer, though. You get the prize, Miss Clovia. And look, you sit right there on the side of it. There's your prize right there. The Lord's already given them to you. Amen? <laughs> so, amen. So Yahweh is a generational God. See, the Bible is full of God choosing and using generations. Think about this. How many times have you seen it in the Old and New Testament? When God's speaking, he says, I am Yahweh, 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He, he, he reveals himself. He, he labels himself as a God of generations. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God also established covenant with generations like he did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think about the priestly line of Aaron, the Levitical priest that came through Aaron. There, he said that there would always be a priest that would come through Aaron's descendants. Also, he made a covenant with David. Generations behind him, there would always be a king in Israel that would come, or really Judah, that would come through David's lineage. And then think about this. Another quiz. Bible quiz for you. How does the, the gospel start? The first book of the gospels, the book of Matthew, the very first chapter, what does it start with? Yeah, genealogies. That's correct. A lot of y'all speed read through that. You get to Matthew, like, okay, I want to, I'm going to read through all them names. Look, some of y'all shaking your head like, yeah, you're right, Pastor, I do. I go, right? But it's important. He put it in the Bible for a reason. It shows you that God is the God of generations. He starts the whole New Testament, the gospel. He lays out the genealogy of Jesus. He wanted us to see the generations, Jesus' genealogy in the natural and how this all came about. He cares about generations. God also not only cares about generations, calls and uses and moves through generations, he moves through families as well. So as we continue on in this message, think about your family and future generations as we go through this time together. Think about this. Jesus called a couple of pair of brothers to be his apostles. Peter and Andrew, right, were brothers. James and John were brothers. He called both of them families, brothers, natural brothers. And then also John the Baptist, who was the forerunner for the Messiah, was also his first cousin. We see how God uses family. He also saves families, right, through people. Noah, we talked about that, right, when he flooded the earth. Noah came in, he built the ark, and he said, hey, you and your family. Through Noah, he came in, and he wanted to save a whole family, and he did. Also Rahab. You remember the prostitute Rahab, whenever the children of Israel were going into the promised land, and she hid the two spies uh, that went there to scout out the land. Later on, it said, hey, if you come, hang that scarlet thread out of your window, and you and your family will be saved. And she got her family in there, and they were saved after that. God cares about and wants to save whole families. Now, this is just powerful as well. Think about this. And I went back and read it this morning. And it's really special to me now. Think about Mark and Ms. Clovey and some others that came with us to Israel. Think about Acts chapter 10. Cornelius is praying, and the angel appears to him and speaks to him and says, Go get a man named Simon Peter. Simon Peter is praying. He has a vision about a tent coming down. And, and God says, Rise up, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, Oh, no, Lord, I would never eat anything that's unclean. Now, you know, those, those of us in South Louisiana, we like to use that as like, You see, rise up, kill and eat. We can go eat some crawfish and some pork chops, right? And although that's true, that's not what the vision was talking about. What he was telling him was, hey, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean, meaning the Gentiles. Go with these men that are coming to your house and, 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 and basically give them the message of the gospel. So Peter comes to Cornelius' house. We actually went the first day that we toured Israel. We stood in the very place where Peter preached to Cornelius. This is the first time the gospel went out to the Gentiles. We were able and blessed to stand in the very place where the gospel went out so that me and you that are sitting here today can be saved. Amen? And generations after us. But here's what's interesting. Cornelius wasn't by himself. The Bible says in Acts 10 that he called all his close relatives and his friends. They all came together. 
Peter shows up. Peter starts preaching. As Peter's preaching the gospel, the Bible says he interrupted Peter. The Holy Ghost fell on him. They got filled with the Holy Spirit, began to pray in other tongues, prophesy. Later, Peter said, you see, look, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the Gentiles. Do you see any reason why they can't be baptized? And they all got baptized. So you see God saved family and friends through the obedience of Peter and Cornelius. All, a whole family got saved, filled the Spirit, and was baptized in water. Amen. I know I've been talking about my dear mama for a while, for a couple, quite a couple of weeks, you know, and talking about Miss Clovia. They were, they were best friends. But you got to think about my mom. You know, my mom was the first one to get saved in my family, and then both me and my brother got saved as well. God's into saving families. God's the God of generations, but he's also into saving families. You never know how God is showing his hesed love and, and on you pouring out his love on you from a previous generation or maybe a current family member who's praying for you, maybe even right now. Amen? See, let me encourage you as we move on from this point. We're talking about God. I always try to give us something. How can we apply this? Yes, that relationship with our life. You don't know what you're doing, how. You need to know that your life right now can impact generations after you. Your life right now, what you're doing, what we're doing can impact generations. I, I don't know if Peter knew when he left that place he was praying, walked over, knew he could even get persecuted for going into a Roman officer's house, a Gentile's house, and preach the gospel that thousands of generations would be affected right now. Amen? Isn't that amazing? What we're doing now, the prayers we're praying, the seeds we're sowing, the life we live in can affect generations to come because God lavishes his hesed love on thousands of generations. Amen? Secondly, he's faithful to forgive. Exodus 34, 7. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. The, the Hebrew word for forgive here means to carry away. He, he carries away our sins. We know that the Bible tells us that the blood of Jesus washes away our sin. This, this Hebrew word is he carries it away. See, let me tell you, we serve a forgiving God, not a vindictive one. Amen. I think some of you still are not too sure about that. And we're going to get into how God doesn't, doesn't excuse the guilty. But God is a forgiving God. He's not a vindictive one. He, his heart and his desire is to forgive. All three of these is iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And, and again, how do we apply this before we, we dive into those three different things? And that's why it's so important that we forgive others. Because he has forgiven us so much. Ephesians 4.32 tells us that the Amplified, be kind and helpful to one another, tender-hearted, compassionate and understanding, forgiving one another readily and freely, just as God in Christ also forgave you. He reminds us that God forgave us through Christ. And listen, I know you've been hurt. I know you've been betrayed. I know people, I, I have too. But the Bible makes it clear. When we start thinking or have a hard time forgiving people, there's nothing anyone has done to us that's worse than what we did to God. He has forgiven us way more. He has forgiven us an eternal debt that we could never pay. And so we must forgive others. But let's dive into that. Iniquity, rebellion, and sin. He says, I forgive them all. And there are three different things. Let's look at iniquity. First, iniquity is your twisted nature. Our twisted nature are bent towards sin. Towards a behavior. We were predisposed to this. You know when people say we, we were all born into sin. We are. We're born in and that, that, that twisted nature is called iniquity. 
Again, I've used this quite often, and you know it to be true. If you have kids or grand, you know, grandkids, you've seen it. You can put two toddlers on the floor under a year old, and one could have like most of the toys or all of the toys, and one baby has one. That other child, if he wants it, is going to go get that other toy. Am I right or am I wrong? Nobody taught that baby that or that toddler that. Why does they do? Why do they do that? Because we're born into. We have a, a sin nature that's really called iniquity. It's a twisting towards sin. You know, I heard a story that was very powerful. It's a good illustration of this. There was a, a couple that, that was living uh, in, in, a, in a residence that had a next door neighbor and they had a fence and they had a beautiful cedar tree, but they had one of the branches was twisted. It was twisted and over and coming over the fence. And so the neighbors, you know, they asked their neighbors, hey, can we cut this branch off? You know, it's starting to come over. It could affect our fence. And the neighbors like, absolutely, man. That, that old branch is all nasty looking and twisted anyway. By any means, please, you know, cut it off and take it away. No problem. Well, the couple did that. They cut this twisted branch off of their cedar tree, but they didn't just take it and throw it away. They actually took this twisted branch and they planted it in the ground. They nurtured it and that branch actually began to straighten up and grew into a beautiful cedar tree. And they were able to lay and sit under the shade of that cedar tree. What a beautiful picture of us. We're born into iniquity with a twisted bent towards sin. But when we repent and give our lives to Christ, he begins to nurture us so we can grow straight and strong and maybe even be a blessing to others around us by giving them spiritual shade, so to speak. Amen, brother? Amen. This is what the Lord does. Next, that's iniquity. Next is rebellion. Now, rebellion is just straight up premeditated and rebellious sin that we commit. Jonah in the Bible is one of the best examples of that. Our worst example is the best example of rebellion, but what he did. God tells him to go to Nineveh. What does he do? He gets in the ship and he goes the exact opposite way. We actually went to the port as well where they believe that he actually bought that ticket and got on that ship as well. That's just straight up rebellion. When you know what the Bible says to do or to not do, but you make a conscious and calculated decision that I'm going to do it anyway. That's rebellion. And see, and, and, and let me say this. I notice Today, more than anything, people try to justify their rebellion. They try to take scripture and twist scripture or, or, or what they, what they deem that the scripture means or for our culture in our time to justify rebellion. No amount of justification can actually justify or forgive your rebellion. Rebellion is still rebellion. It's a premeditated decision that I'm going to do what the Lord told me not to or not, I'm going to not do what the Lord told me to do. I thought about this. It's kind of, they do it in a funny way, but it shows again that we all, because we have a, a, a bent towards sin or rebellion, iniquity. If you've seen this, we, we like to watch America's Funniest Videos. You've probably seen it. Everybody's seen it online. Parents will set up phones and their kids don't know. And they put like cookies or like candy or something. They tell them, okay, now don't eat any of it until I get back. Have y'all seen that? Right? And then they walk away and what happens? Most of the kids end up sneaking one or two or whatever or try you know some of them don't some of them actually restrain and do good but it just shows you it's straight up rebellion even in a child right even a child do not do this and we haven't been to do it remember all of this the good news is god's willing to forgive all of these things right and then lastly sin sin means to miss the mark the word we know it means to miss the mark it's an archery term that means an archer but this is interesting i just found out this week i've always heard it means to miss the mark like an archer pulls back on a bow and he's aiming for the bullseye 
But he doesn't just miss the bullseye, he misses the whole target. That's what sin is. Sin is we, we, we aiming, but we miss the whole target. Now, this is shark, us falling short. The Bible tells us we've all sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. So this is us day in and day out. We're never going to be perfect. We're trying to serve the Lord. You're here today. You're wanting to learn. You're wanting to grow. But we do mess up. We fall short. And that's sin. But the good news is, he says, I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. We all fall short. Look, look at a couple of scriptures that shows that all three of these were a part of the Hebrew thought process and prayer life as well. Listen what King David prayed after committing adultery with Bathsheba, having her husband killed, and then lying about it. Three different things. Psalm 51, 1 and 2, the new King James, he's praised this. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. That's Hesed. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, another word for transgressions is rebellion. Look at verse 3 in the New Living. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. So you see that he points out iniquity, sin, and rebellion. Now listen to what Isaiah prophesied about Jesus taking upon himself all of these on the cross for us. Look at Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we can be healed. You see that? Right here, he points out two different things, sin and rebellion. Jesus is, it, it died on the cross and took these things, God's full wrath, our rebellion, our sin, to, to break that iniquity off of our life. And if we repent and we turn to him, he will forgive us. That's some good news, amen? That's the good news. Let's get into the bad news now. Number three, the guilty will not get off. The guilty will not get off. Isaiah 34, 7, but I do not excuse the guilty. See, this is another thing you got to know about God, that God is a very just God. He's merciful, he's compassionate, but he's also very just. And that's why some people look at God and are always looking at his justice and wrath. You've heard the old term, fire. people just preach hell, fire, and brimstone, right? But some people, and which I think is an even more dangerous deception, is some people uh, paint a broad stroke about God and say that God loves everybody and will forgive everybody and everybody's going to end up in heaven one day. That's a lie from the pit of hell. How do I know that? Because the Bible says he does not excuse sin. He will not excuse the guilty. But we can be thankful that God is a just God. Amen? It's a great thing that he will not excuse the guilty, right? There's, there's some, I mean, you know, think about it just in our terms. If somebody T-bones you and totals your car, you don't like, oh, I forgive you, man. Don't worry about it. No, you, the guilty needs to pay for my car, right? He made a mistake. He needs to pay for it, right? You look at things like that, and, and we can go even deeper into it. I'm not going to do that this morning. It's also a scary thing that God is a just God because the truth is, I've said it before, we're all guilty of sin, right? See, whether we know it or not or you believe it or not, I think you do, God is keeping a record of every single thing that we do. Everything we do, say, think. Brother Francis Bork was in the first service, one of our elders. He said he keeps a good record, too. I'm like, you're right, Brother Francis, he does. You know, it made me think about this. I, I heard a story recently, and you probably know people like this, heard people here, maybe even in our own town, about a man that, for some reason, business owner, true story, his CPA told him that, for some reason, because of how his business was set up, he didn't need to pay taxes. It didn't sound like he was a just CPA guy. Uh, you know, I don't know why he got a CPA license, maybe Walmart or something, I'm not sure. 
But this guy took it and ran with it. And for six years, he did not pay taxes. But guess what? The IRS was keeping a detailed record of how much money he made each and every year. And I promise you, he was held accountable for his business. And he did end up paying those taxes as well as fines, as well as prison time, right? You will be held accountable. So that, if the IRS keeps a detailed record of what we do, how much more the Lord? Both the Old and New Testament speak of this. Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes 11.9. I shared this verse. I preached at Chi Alpha and UL's campus a couple weeks ago, and I, I shared this verse. Young people, it's wonderful to be young. Everybody can say amen. Enjoy every minute of it. Awesome. Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. Man, that's great. The Bible says I can do whatever I want to do. It does. But look at the next line. Everybody say, but. Remember, you must give an account to God for everything you can do. Everything you do. You can do whatever you want. You will be held accountable for it. God is keeping a detailed record of everything that we do. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36 and 37. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will have to give an accounting for every careless or useless word they speak. Y'all want to just stop and pray right now? Every careless and useless word we speak. For by your words, reflecting your spiritual condition, you will be justified and acquitted of guilt and sin. There you go. That guy's heart to forgive, right? And it's really the context is about being saved. He's saying by your words, you'll see your spiritual condition. Are you living your life? Have you confessed Jesus? Jesus is, is giving us a prelude to Romans. And you'll be justified and acquitted of the guilt of the guilt of your sin. And by your words, rejecting me, you will be condemned and sentenced. We will give an account. For our life, our words, our spiritual condition, how we lived our life. And then Romans 14, 12, yes, each of us will give an account to God. Remember Romans, I'm alluding, I alluded to Romans just now because Romans says, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, you shall be saved. So here Jesus says, hey, by your words, it will show your spiritual condition. I think that's everyday life and conversations. But he also said, your words will also condemn and convict you because you rejected me with your life and with your words. See, he's faithful to forgive all who repent. Remember, everybody say all. All who repent, but he doesn't excuse those who refuse to repent. And you got to remember that. If somebody tries to tell you God's a loving God and will forgive everybody, everybody's going to end up in heaven, maybe that's a way to remember it, a, a word that rhymes. God will not excuse those who refuse to repent. That's how he can be both forgiving and merciful and also very just. He will not excuse those who refuse to repent. God has laid it all out for us. He sent his one and only son to die on the cross for us, to make a way that if we repent and surrender, he would forgive us. But some people refuse to do that and will not do that. And they're going to bust hell wide open. That's the truth. That's the bad news side of the gospel. There be good news. The gospel is good news. There has to be bad news. And the bad news is we've all sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus if we repent and turn to him. Now, before I move on from this point and get to our last one, not only does God not excuse the guilty, you have to remember those of us that are forgiven and you've repented of your sins and you've been forgiven. Remember, even though you're forgiven, there's consequences to our sin as well. Remember that. There's consequences to our sin. Think about the murderer. And it might be hard for you to, some of you to wrap your brain around this, but even the, 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 the serial killer who truly repents of his sin one day, 
and, and turns to Christ will be saved and he will be forgiven. But he, he'll, he'll spend the rest of his life in prison. Maybe he'll even get the death penalty, right? Because that's a consequence of his sin. You could be forgiven and there's still consequences. Think about David. We just mentioned about David committing adultery, having Bathsheba's husband killed and lying about it. He, he repented. He cries out. You can read about it in Psalms. And the Lord says, you're forgiven. But then he said, but the sword will never leave your house. And it started with he got Bathsheba pregnant and that baby died. Later on, his son Absalom rebelled against him, created a mutiny in the kingdom of Israel and ended up starting a war with his, his dad, David. And his son, his other son, ends up getting killed. Absalom got killed. Later on, one of his sons raped one of his daughters. And it just on and on, it continued. So David was forgiven, but there was consequences to his sin. Think about the children of Israel as well, right? Because of their unbelief, they didn't go into the promised land. Uh, they had to wonder for 40 years, and then God ended up saying all those that were adults that refused, refused to believe him never ended up seeing the promised land. So he does not excuse the guilty. The guilty will not get off. And then finally, number four, the fourth and final thing, sin can affect generations. God is faithful to forgive. He lavishes love on, on thousands of generations. The guilty will not get off, and sin can affect generations. I know for some of you, you've been looking at this verse and hoping that we just get through that real quick. But no, let's break it down. Let's, let's, let's look at it. Exodus 34, 7. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. Now, you may have thought different ways, seen this, read it different ways, heard it taught, thought, uh, taught different ways. But we really need to break it down into four layers. Look, let's look at the first layer so we're clear. Let me make it clear. God does not contradict himself. Do you believe that? God's word does not contradict itself. Okay, so let's make it clear. Layer number one. God is clear that he doesn't judge or punish uh, children for their parents' sin or judge people for their parents' sin. Let's look at some verses to confirm. That's not what the word lay means. We're going to look at it in a minute. But let's start there. Deuteronomy 24, 16, parents must not be put to death for the sins of their children, nor children for the sins of their parents. Those deserving to die must be put to death for their own crimes. Look at Ezekiel 18, 19, and 22. What, you ask? Doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins? No! Exclamation point. He made it clear. No. For if the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees, the child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child would not be punished for the parent's sin, and the parents would not be punished for the child's sin. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. I love this. Here's grace and mercy coming in again. But if a wicked person turns away from their sins and begins to obey my decrees and do what is just and right, then they will surely live and not die. All their past sins will be forgotten, will be carried away, and they will live because of the righteous things they have done. You see that? So he's not saying that the, the, that the parents or the children will be punished of the parents. We're going to, I'm going to show you in a minute what that word actually means. So that's layer one. Helps us to understand this verse better. Layer two, all those sins are individually assessed, are, are, are paid for. They do affect generations. And that's why I wanted to highlight this in the point. Our sin, our actions, our behavior can affect people around us and even generations. Think about the children of Israel or the Israelites, they made a decision that they were, wasn't going to believe most of them, except for Caleb and Joshua, that they weren't going to believe God that Canaan was the promised land. God says, so now you will wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They had little children. 
Guess what? Those little kids had to wander with them for 40 years. It wasn't the kids that, the kids had nothing to do with that decision. But the parents' sins affected their children. And those children had to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. But those children ended up growing up and those were the ones that went to the promised land. See, they were affected by their parents' sin, but, but then as they got older, they had their own decision to make. Their parents died off and they went into the promised land. Let's bring it to modern day. A lot of you, like me in here, grew up in a home of either alcohol or abuse, or let me say it this way, addiction or abuse, or maybe both, right? I grew up in a home with both, and I promise you, living in a home as a child with addiction and abuse affected me, infected my brother, it affected those around, right? I wasn't being punished for my, my parents' sins, but it affected me. And it can continue on. And here's another way it affects generations on down. If you grew up in a home where you saw addiction and addiction was normal and even celebrated, like in my home, you know, I mentioned earlier how me and my brother both got saved, but before we both became addicts because we saw the addiction in our home with our father and it was celebrated and it was encouraged. So it's natural that from one generation passed on to next, as you see some sin and as we know iniquity's working, it does affect the, the next generation on down. Are y'all tracking with me? Are you following me? God doesn't punish the next generation, but it does affect and can have ripple effects and continue to, to have a stronghold in, in generations to come. Number three, the third layer is just because he judges one generation for sin doesn't mean that the next can do the same thing without judgment. Now, this clarifies the word lay. That word lay says, I lay the sins of the parents on the, the children in the third and fourth generation. That word lay in the Hebrew actually means to visit or inspect. It doesn't mean to punish. Some translations say, I punish the sins, but that's not what the original word means. And it makes sense. Look at New King James hits it uh, right. Uh, Exodus 34, 7, keeping mercy for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin by no means clearing the guilty. We just went through those. Watch this. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What that word means is that he visits. He, he inspects to see, okay, one generation lived in this outright sin and rebellion, and he's going to see if the next generation is going to continue. It ties into what we talked about a couple weeks ago, right? What I just mentioned. He's wanting, he's warning, and then what does he do? He's watching. He's inspecting for repentance. You remember we talked about that? Jesus uses the illustration of that fig tree that was not producing fruit. And he said, hey, the, the gardener went back and he checked to see if there was fruit and there was none. And he said, I'm going to cut that thing off and throw it away. And he said, oh, let me go and give it special attention. That was about Jesus. This is what he's talking about here. I guess a modern day illustration would be this. All of us that have flown before, and if not, you've probably seen it in a movie or not. Before you take off, the stewardess or it comes, or maybe the pilot comes on, and the stewardess tells everybody to buckle your seatbelt. Before that plane takes off, the stewardess will walk down that aisle, maybe more than once, and will inspect and check to make sure everybody's buckled up. Right? So he tells us what we need to do and not do. He sees sin and rebellion, but he visits. He inspects to see if the next generation is doing the same thing, because he's wanting everybody to repent. Are y'all tracking with me? This all ties in together. And then the fourth and final one layer is, the, is great because notice the drastic difference between, you know, visiting the sins and how sins affect thousands of generations. I mean, three to four generations, but his lavish love, forgiveness goes for thousands of generations. 
That shows you God is very merciful. And he's also very just. But we see here in God's character that he shows his desire for the greater is to forgive. It's to redeem. It's to atone for. Amen? Are y'all tracking with me? Amen? This is great news this morning, right? The guilty are not going to go unpunished if they refuse. But God's heart and desire is to lavish unfailing love to thousands of generations. And again, but those that don't refuse will not be excused for their sin or their guilt. So as we close today, how should we respond? Well, it's found in verse 8. I think we should respond the same way that Moses responded to all of this. I said it last week. Moses didn't respond with questioning God, telling God he wasn't fair, trying to figure it out uh, uh, psychologically or theologically. What did Moses do in verse 8? Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshiped. When God revealed his character to him, even some of these tough things, I'm sure Moses, you know, was like drinking out of a fire hydrant. God Almighty, Yahweh himself speaking to him. Moses bowed to the ground immediately and he worshiped. And we're, he, the reason he worshiped, it was out of gratitude and awe. We can thank the God. We can thank the Lord, God, for being the God of generations. Amen. We're going to take a minute before we leave today and we're going to worship him again together. But before we do, I want to close with one more, asking you one more question. How are you going to respond? Have you repented of your sins? If you do, Yahweh will forgive you. If you don't, if you refuse and reject Jesus, like he said, you will be held guilty for your sin. The good news is Jesus paid for our sins. He was guiltless. He was spotless. He was blameless. Yet he died on the cross, taking the full penalty, punishment, and wrath of God for you and I. Matthew 12, 37 again. Jesus said, for your words reflecting your spiritual condition, you will be justified. That word is just as though you've never sinned and acquitted of the guilt of your sins. By our words, by our repentance, by our heart change, by confessing Jesus, and by your words rejecting me, you will be condemned and sentenced. See, our words motivated by faith must show that we've repented and surrendered. So have you accepted Christ or have you been rejecting him? Whatever head bowed and every eye closed. We're all going to spend eternity somewhere. I, I say it week in and week out. And this just shows that God is a very loving, forgiving, merciful, but also a very just God. Not everyone's going to end up in heaven. But if you don't end up in heaven, you had to step over Jesus to end up in hell. God has made a way and provided everything for you and shows you by thousands of generations he wants to lavish his love and forgiveness towards. So if you say, Brandon, man, I'm not sure where I'd spend eternity if I'm even right with God. Maybe you say, man, I feel like I have been rejecting Christ and I need to repent of my sins and surrender and accept him today. If that's you, just slip up your same hand. Say, Brandon, I need to get saved today, man. I need to accept Christ into my life. I see your hand, sir. Anybody else? Praise the Lord. Anybody else? Say, Brandon, that's me. That's me. I see your hand over here. Over here, more hands going up. Anybody else? Praise the Lord in the back. I see you over there. I see you. More importantly, I see you, man. God sees you. The Lord sees you. If, if you are tuned in at LPCC, same thing. Have you accepted or rejected the Lord? If you accept him, the Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 12. Can we all pray this together in faith? Even as a family, all of us that are already saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
Thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for showing me love. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Lord, I know that I've sinned. And I repent of my sin. I turn away from sin and I turn to you. I surrender to you, Lord Jesus. I declare you are my Lord and Savior. Now, Lord, give me the grace to live for you and to glorify you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Come on, can we celebrate and rejoice with these this morning? Amen. Come on, if you made that decision and you surrendered for the first time, fill out the connection card in the chair in front of you and bring it to the info center. We got a Bible. We want to pray for you. Hey, service is not over. Stand up with me. Come on. Can we worship together before we leave for a few minutes? He said he fell to the ground and worshiped. That was reverence in awe. Come on. Can we stand in awe and worship Yahweh, the everlasting God, for who he is as he's revealed himself to us? Come on. Let's worship him one more time as we go.
all the honor, all the blessing. We praise you. We magnify you. We thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us as you are. Lord, I pray again as we go forth, Lord, this would increase our relationship with you, our intimacy with you. But also, Lord, how, Lord God, we speak to others about you. Lord, I pray, give us greater revelation of who you are, Lord God, through your word, by your spirit, each and every day. I pray your blessing upon these as they go about their day and their Thanksgiving week this week. May they enjoy any time they have off it with their family. May you be glorified, souls will be saved, and once again, you draw us closer to you and closer to each other. In Jesus' wonderful name, we pray, and everybody said, amen. And amen. Well, God bless you. We love you. If you need prayer for anything, we'll be down here. If not, have a happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy your week, and we'll see y'all soon. Thank you, sir. Receive. Thank you, worship team.